Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. I'm recording live again in the studio at True Digital Park. I love this place. Today, I'm joined again, again, Matt, by Matthew Ward, a co-founder and CEO of Workmate. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Michael. Thanks for having me. Thank you for doing this again. Look, it was almost exactly a year ago. We had a pretty great conversation. I think people know a lot about what Workmate is. We'll talk about the name change in a little bit. I just want to follow up with you and see what's changed in the last sort of six to nine months. There's been a lot of news out there about what you've been doing. Yeah, it's been, um, I mean, you, you just said it's been a year. Like, part of me feels like, wow, has it been a year already? And part of me feels like it was yesterday. Right. No, a lot, a lot has happened in, in the last year, as you just sort of alluded to. We, you know, we closed our Series A fundraising. We, we rebranded. We're building out a new kind of operation in Singapore to, to launch the platform here in a few months. So um, there's been a hell of a lot going on, which is good. Can you talk a little bit about the rebranding? And then I want to talk about the funding in a second. But what was the idea around changing the name from, what was it before, Helpster to Workmate? Yeah. Uh, look, I think, um, you know, we, you know, Helpster was the name when we first started the business. And when we first started, we had a very different business model, right? And we got to a point where, you know, after about 18 months, we pivoted and we, we pivoted towards this manpower on-demand staffing uh, model, but we never did anything with the name. And what we what we were learning as we went around the market was a few things. Is that first of all, people didn't you know by hearing our name, people didn't really understand what we were or what we were doing. Got it. Uh, and often the first impression was, oh, you guys do maids or cleaners, and we always had to kind of like justify, no, that's not what we do. Right. So we didn't feel that the name helps to really tell the story of what we were doing very well. That's one reason. And I think if you, if you look at, you know, Southeast Asia and some of the big companies here, most companies, you know, the name, it's pretty, it sort of relates very closely to what they do, whether, you know, right. Gojek, it's you know, getting, a, getting an Ojek, uh, you know, Grab, you know, you're grabbing a taxi originally. Yep. And so we wanted a name that, that was very, that very clearly positioned us in the space that we operate, which is the position of, you know, providing people with work and providing businesses with, with high quality workers. And so we sort of went through an exercise and, and felt that it was the right time. You know, we closed our funding. It was the right time to kind of do a little bit of a relaunch and a rebrand. And, and that was sort of the main driver behind it. How hard is that to do? Do you know what I mean? Like, how hard is it to change all of the things that are associated with the brand? People don't think about that a lot, but that's got to be hard, yeah? Well, I think it's different if you're a consumer-facing business than if you're a B2B business. So we're predominantly B2B, right? So we have 300-odd customers across Indonesia and Thailand that that use our platform. You know, we have a lot of workers. We have, you know, tens of thousands of workers that, that, that find employment through us, but they actually aren't too bothered about the name. They just want to know when their next job's coming through the platform. So it was, actually wasn't too painful. I think it's probably quite different if you're a consumer-facing business Fair enough. that relies on that kind of brand exposure. You know, I, I, I spoke, actually, I spoke a lot to, to Tiwa uh, from Kaidi.com, who you know. I mean, they yep. went through a couple of, uh, you know, as well. brands. And, and, you know, I, I learned a lot from him about how he did it and what he did right and what he did wrong. And, and I took that advice on board. So it wasn't too painful, actually. Um, okay. I think it's a lot more challenging for a business like his when you've got, you know, millions of consumers you have to reach with that with that change. Right. And his name, actually, as you said, if you know what Kai and D means in Thai, it actually does say what the company's doing as well. But yeah, exactly. it's hard. That works well in Southeast Asia. I think you need, you know, the, the names, you know, companies, it works well when the name tells you what they do. And I think that's that's what we tried to, to create. Yes. The other thing I think we found, you know, our sales team were going out there and introducing themselves from Helpster and, and people had the initial impression that we were what we used to do. And so we always had to constantly kind of like, oh, no, no, we're not that anymore. You know, right. so I think a, a fresh a fresh start, you know, we, we you know, we, we got our product market fit. The business is growing rapidly. It was a good time to kind of do that change. 
Yeah, it's funny because when people ask me, like, what is the Asia Tech podcast about? I always use the same phrase, like, it's in the name. Like, if you can't figure yeah. it out from the exactly. name, <laughs> it should be obvious. And as soon as you said it, I was thinking about two companies in Thailand, bigger companies, but like Thai Bev, you know what they do. It's a Thailand company that's in the beverage business or SCG, Siam Cement Group. Like, it's so obvious. Yeah. You don't need to explain it. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Yeah. How about the funding? So you raised a pretty good Series A. What was it? Five point yeah. two million bucks, and from some right. really good investors as well, right? This was not some, you know what I mean? These are not like low level investors. Some really great investors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, go ahead. What is that money going to be used for? Like, what's the purpose for this? Yeah. Look. So at the moment, we're. Um, I mean, the first thing is, you know, we're, we've invested it, and in, I mean, we closed it a year ago, so we're already sort of like, you know, well into kind of like using that using that cash that we raised. Yeah. But the, the first thing is just like ramping up our sales and marketing. You know, 2018, we spent a lot of time sort of working on our operational processes and, and the back end and, uh, and so forth. And, and last year, you know, post-funding close, we sort of said, okay, we're going to start ramping up our sales and marketing. Right. Um, the other thing that we're doing is we're just really investing more in uh, the technology and getting smarter with our technology. So a year ago when we spoke, predominantly what we were doing was, again, providing you know, businesses with access to, to, to workers, very, you know, qualified workers very, very quickly. Right. But a lot of the, the logic and intelligence behind it was relatively rudimentary. But how the business is changing now is that we're, we're really focusing heavily on the data side of it. That's just um, what I wrote down. Go ahead. I'm really yeah. curious about this. So, it's, it's, so, you know, people often ask me, like, what makes you guys different to a traditional outsourcing agency or what makes you different to a, um, to a, uh, a job board, right, that just provides job ads? Oh, and, and the key difference is that is that we manage the entire workflow through technology. So from the time the worker gets onboarded and screened all the way through to everything they do every single day, you know, uh, they're clocking in and clocking out, logging their time. We know if they're on time. We know if they're late. We know if they're getting good ratings, you know, all the way through to their payments. We, we generate, you know, thousands of data points on every single worker that we have on every engagement they have every single day. Right. So we can actually learn a lot about, okay, what type of job does that guy do very well at? What kind of job does he not do so well at? You know, what type of jobs does he enjoy? What type of jobs does he not enjoy? You can also learn very quickly about the customer and what types of workers they generally prefer and they give better ratings to, right? So from that, you can actually model that data to start getting a lot smarter about the types of workers you assign to each customer. Yeah. Um, and so it's very much a data-driven approach to be able to find that right match. And what you find is that when you get that right match, you get lower worker churn and you get higher productivity. So the companies see a massive drop off in their worker churn uh, and they see a big improvement in the worker productivity. The workers are also happier because they're doing stuff that they're good at and they enjoy. Right. So for us, like the, the, the big thing that we're investing in now is with all this data that we're collecting, how do we actually build in you know, machine learning and, and, and even to a point where you know, we can look at things like AI as well to start really understanding the workers' drivers and the workers' sort of motivations, and then you can get a really good effective match. So I want to make, the, I want to make this point again, right? Because you said some people think about it like a job board, but in no way is this like a job board at any level. No, it's, it's more like a staffing or manpower agency 2.0. Yep. It's like a digital staffing agency, right? Because the yeah. workers are actually employed by us. They're on our payroll. Right, right. You pay them. But this is what makes it so cool to me. I just get excited when I hear these conversations, right? Yeah. Because you can actually make the workers happy. You can make the, your clients on the other side happy. It's a two-sided yeah. marketplace, right? Because both of them are really your customers. But by using the data as well, and this gets more important the more data you have. And this is one of the things I think where you have an edge. The longer you do this, the more data you capture, the more data right. you capture, the more efficient you can be than anybody that comes in and tries to do it because yeah. you already know things. 
every six months I get a survey from, I can't remember the name of the employment agency in, uh, in Japan that tells me what the bonus levels are, what the salary levels are in a field where I used to be. Yeah. Once you know that, that particular data, just the payment data alone is so powerful, right? Right, yeah. To, to a certain extent, you can then control the market for what people get paid. Yeah, look, so at the moment, the, I mean, the way we do it is we don't set the wage. You know, we, we kind of stay out of that. We let the client set how much they're willing to pay, and we yeah, offer that yeah. to, the, to the workers, right? Right. But what we're able to do, actually, and we're moving towards is a situation where we can do, you know, maybe surge pricing. So if the client needs people in a certain t- area of town at a certain yeah. time of day with very short notice, we can actually push those prices up knowing that the supply is limited in terms of availability. Right. So it's some really cool stuff you can do once you, once you get that, that, that traction. And the great thing is, is that every day that we do a work through the platform, um, we're generating more data. So we're getting smarter and smarter as we go. And one thing our investors like about that is it's building defensibility because somebody else can come in with a great new app and a great new platform that hasn't been in the market for three or four years and, and has to start that data collection from scratch. So we kind of are building a, a uh, quite strong uh, defensive moat uh, with, with that data set. Yeah, so one of the first books that Adrian Vanzel recommend I read when I walked into the Art and Capital offices was the Googleplex. Right. And that was one of the things that I learned from that book is that Google has been collecting data for years now, and to catch them in the data collection game is done. Like, you can't do it. Yeah, but that's what you're doing, and that's the moat around that business. We're one of them, right? And that's yeah. why it's so interesting to me. And that was sort of the genesis of that question: was yeah, the more data you capture, the more you protect that business. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know, back to your original question about the investors. I mean, one of our investors in our last round was Beacon Venture Capital, which is the corporate yep. VC arm of Casacorn Bank in Thailand, yep. right? And one yep. thing they love about it is is exactly this: is that the data that we're generating from you know these informal workers doing jobs that were typically done offline, you know, warehouse work, delivery riders, you know, they, you know, we're now able to sort of start offering these guys, you know, access to additional services through partners like Cascorn Bank, micro loans, micro insurance products, cash advances on their pay, things like that, that, that um, typically was hard to do previously because there wasn't the data to support that. But now we can provide the data that, the, you know, the, the financial institutions have maybe a lower risk on those workers because they know how much money they're earning, whereas previously they, they didn't have that data. So that it opens up a lot of resp- a lot of sort of uh, you know, opportunities for us as we grow at scale. Yes. Yeah, so one of the things that I talk about a lot, actually two of them, are building a platform business, and then what other things can you plug into that p- platform? But in particular, I have a whole podcast focused on insure tech. So you brought that up, and I just want to talk about that a little bit as well. Yeah. To insure somebody in Southeast Asia, where penetration in the insurance market is somewhere between three and five percent, depending on country, right? Yep. At some level, you need to know what their income is or what their income stability is. This is why you can now, companies like Grab and Gojek can offer microinsurance to their drivers because they know how often they're driving. But you have the same thing in this informal labor market. It may have looked before like an informal labor person, guy or gal, isn't working that consistently, but now you know. Exactly. Right. And so exactly the same reason why Grab and Gojek are doing this stuff, um, because they're able now to, to have, you know, the insights into what, you know, these workers are actually doing and what they need. Um, we have the same position. We're just doing it, you know, for people that don't want to drive around for, uh, for, for a living, right? Right. They, they want to work in a restaurant or they want to do event work or they yeah. want to work in different industries. They don't, they don't have a car, things like that. Yeah, I got it. How big do you think the informal labor market is in Southeast Asia and how fast is it growing or how big is it going to get? Yeah. So I was looking at recent data from the ILO, the National Labor uh, Organization, and it's, um, 
Uh, you know, they estimate, you know, obviously it depends on the country in Southeast Asia, but on average around 63% of the workforce are informal. So it's massive, right? So you've got, you know, 200 odd million people, more than 250 million odd people that are, that are informal. Mind you, you know, a large part of that is, is, is agriculture, uh, which is not a space that we kind of operate in right now. Uh, but even if you take that out, you know, take out, you know, the farmers and so forth up country, it's a very large part of the workforce. And that's yeah. where we see an opportunity is that if you look at, you know, the jobs and hiring and recruitment space, there's a lot of companies that are trying to build technologies, say in HR tech, but everything is generally focused at that professional level, you know, people that sit in an office and do a job every day. Right. And we kind of see these, you know, lower income, uh, more informal workers as kind of the forgotten part of the, of the workforce, right? No one's really thinking about how can we help these guys. And, and I think that, that that presents a huge opportunity. And I, and I think one thing that excites us about, about the mission that we have is that, there's a really nice social impact aspect to this as well. Great example. You know, we were doing some worker case studies recently, and there's this guy who we happened to interview at one of our customer sites, just randomly one of our customer sites. is a client we work with in Indonesia. We do about 300 to 400 warehouse workers for them every single day. And we interviewed this guy, and he says, you know, since I've joined Workmate, I've been able to save enough money to be able to buy a house for my family, and it's the first time anyone in my family is going to buy a house. That's awesome. And I'm like, you know, that's awesome, right? I just so, got chill. I really did. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool. And so I think that, you know, that's another really cool thing is that we're giving these guys an opportunity to come into our platform, come into the ecosystem, and just get access to more regular, consistent income, which does have a meaningful impact for them. So I think there's a massive opportunity. There's, there's millions of these people out there that need this help, and and that's kind of what we're trying to tackle. But also, I think at some level, if you believe that the nature of work is changing, and there's a lot of conversations around what that's going to be, and, and I don't, we don't need to get into detail about exactly how that's going to look, because I don't think anybody really knows. But if you believe yeah. at any level that like full-time jobs are somehow going to get less and less prevalent then this becomes more and more important. But again, if I have a full-time job at Goldman Sachs, right, I'm an easy credit risk, I get insurance easily, all these things happen easily because they understand the stability of the income. Yeah. But we already talked about it a little bit, but that's what you're doing in a way, right, for these informal laborers. Yeah, I, th I think it's, you know, a lot of the stuff that I, I read and hear about, you know, the nature of work changing, um, a lot of it is coming from a Western angle, right, yeah, where yeah, wages yeah. are very high, and so there's massive incentives to, to invest in automation and invest in technology. One thing we see in the markets we operate in, like Indonesia, Thailand, is that wages are still very low. Like in Indonesia, you know, you get a guy working in your warehouse for less than $10 a day, right? Which kind of sucks, but that's, that's the price of the market. So um, at some point, you know, these businesses, it's still actually cheaper for them to hire, you know, an army of people on the ground than it is to invest, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in, in technology to automate it. Yep. So I think I don't see that automation revolution happening in these markets as quickly. I'm sure it will happen. But the big thing that we see changing, and you've seen this recently with some of the reports around what, what the Indonesian government is trying to do around restructuring their labor laws to encourage more foreign investment and to make it more employee uh, employer friendly. Yeah, um, employee one thing you look at that market is that under actually both Thai and Indonesian labor law, there is no definition of a part-time worker. Really? Right. What does that mean? Though? What's, what's the significance of that? Go ahead. So you're either a full-time employee or you're not. Oh, you're unemployed. Like, look at the labor law. There's no, there's no like in, in, in Singapore, like if you go to, to MOM, it's like you're either a full-time employee or a part-time employee. Got it. And in these markets, there's not. So traditionally what happens is people are either hired full-time or they're not hired at all, right. right? But what we see is that changing. So companies starting to go, look, as minimum wages are increasing, I need more flexibility. 
I need more people on a Friday and Saturday than I do on a Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, and so that's where they, they see value in working with us is that we can literally scale up and scale down. I've, I literally just got an email this morning about one of our customers in Thailand. I won't mention who, mm-hmm. uh, but they're a customer that you know has uh, had a you know an impact to their business based on the the, the you know COVID nineteen virus. Yep. In that you know uh, products coming in from China have slowed down. They need fewer people in their warehouse to keep their costs in line with with their demand and what they can actually supply. And with us, they could literally scale that workforce back overnight, so they don't have you know so many costs in terms of. You know, now I've got, you know, normally they would have to basically make these people redundant and these guys have no jobs. Right. With us, we just assign them to other jobs. So the worker is no longer, you know, getting fired and unemployed, but is shifting them to a different customer that does have a need. But the business is now able to manage their costs. So I, I think that we're seeing that businesses in these markets are looking for more flexible manpower solutions, particularly as wages are increasing. Uh, and that's sort of, I think, one change that we're seeing in these markets and in the informal market. So it's less I see at the moment around automation and, right. and it's more around getting more contingent channels available so they can ramp up and ramp down. So you might say kind of like, yes, the, the nature of work in these markets is changing, but it's been driven by different types of aspects as you might see in the West. Yeah, this is one of the reasons why I love to tell these stories, right? There's this big misperception in the West, particularly in the United States, that everything's going to happen the same way as it's happening there, right? People are losing jobs there at automation, but here at and, and I want to be clear on this. Did you say earlier that that the people that you hire actually are employed by Workmate? Correct. So this is actually another change that we made last July, which actually I probably didn't update you on. You know, we we kind of, you know, originally the first model was the workers were independent contractors. Yep. And that's okay if the jobs are very short term, if, if we're if customers are booking people for a day or two, right? You can kind yeah. of say, look, it was just a short term job. You know, he's working for himself. It's fine, right? But what we saw was that our customers were actually increasingly asking us for longer-term assignments. So the average length of job in our platform now is actually over 100 days. It's about 105 days. It's three months. It's a long time. Yeah, so customers are actually using us now to replace their traditional outsourcing agreements with the big big traditional agencies. And so what we saw with that was that that was starting now to come into a gray area around are these guys employees or are they really independent contractors, right? Right. Um, and we basically made the decision that to, to basically make sure that we're, you know, regulatory, that we're compliant from a regulatory standpoint, that we needed to make these workers employees. So essentially they're employed by us and we outsource them out to our customers on a, on a job by job basis. But that's actually interesting as well, because now they can say they're full-time employees. Correct. And they get social security. We <laughs> pay their, their social security as well, which they've never had before. So additional benefits that we're providing. Yeah. What's the what's the right word for this? What percentage of the time are most of your employees actually out at a job where they're getting paid? So the way so so I think if, if you look at the moment, like the average work, I think about seventy percent of the workers on our platform right now, we are essentially their full time income, right? And the other thirty percent are still just working weekends or or, or doing sort of more short term stuff, you know, to fit around their, their their studies or or their other other work that they're doing. We do have obviously periods where people finish a job and there's a bit of a delay between that next job, but obviously we optimize that um, and that's part of what the technology is technology able to do. Is going to do yeah. What does expansion look like to you? you? You mentioned Thailand, you mentioned Indonesia, two really big markets. Yep. You also mentioned, I believe it was online, I'm not sure, about building infrastructure to do some of this in Singapore, but how about other markets like Vietnam, Malaysia, the Philippines, stuff like that? Yeah, so I mean, we're very much a city by city play, right? Because we do... Yeah. 
the work of curation and screening. It's, it's you know, again, similar to how Grab or Uber, Uber speaks about it. They talk about how many cities there are in yeah. um, countries, right? Yep. So we're seeing expansion within these countries we're already in. So, um, you know, we're already in Indonesia where we're, we're now expanding into uh, Surabaya and Yogyakarta and we have a, a satellite office in Bali. We're supporting hotels and, and restaurants and events in Bali. So we kind of are seeing like we're still Indonesia, Thailand, but we're seeing uh, expansion within those markets with more cities. So, so we kind of have different ways we can expand. We can expand through adding new cities, geographies. Um, we can expand by adding new verticals. So predominantly at the moment, we're very much in, you know, warehouse, logistics. We're doing F&B events. We also, you know, are doing some basic data entry, admin type work. We can add more of those types of roles. Got it. For expansion and growth um, or geographies. And at the moment, we're sort of focusing more on the geographies that we're in. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, Singapore is a market we're going to be launching in the next quarter. So can you just back up again and talk a little bit about your expansion into Singapore? I got the stuff on the geographies. I, I want to yeah. ask a little bit about partnerships as well. In other words, now that, you're, now that you've been around for a few years, right? I don't want to say you've kind of taken all the low-hanging fruit, but how do you work with partners like other people, other startup companies or other tech companies that have a natural need for employees as well, but that also have a pipeline of people that they yep. deal with that will need your employees. How does that work from a partnership perspective? Great question. And I, I, I probably don't want to share too much about this because there are some sort of very uh, interesting ongoing discussions we're having right now. But, you know, there are other platforms and, and relatively large startups that, that support merchants. Right, right. You know, whether it be in the food delivery space, they have restaurants, or whether it be in the e-commerce space, marketplace, they have, you know, sellers that, that need help with packing and shipping orders or they need help with in their restaurants because they're short staffed. So um, these conversations are ongoing and it's some really interesting opportunities for us to integrate and scale that way as well. Yeah. I mean, I can only begin to imagine. I think I under, can understand what that is and people that actually know what's happening in these markets will know what that means as well. But I, yeah. it just popped into my head and I wanted to ask, yeah. what have been some of your kind of unanticipated challenges? In other words, as you've really started to grow, right? And as you're your business model becomes more well-defined and as you're working on your tech, what are some of the biggest challenges you have right now? What are the roadblocks to growth? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, um, it's a bit cliche and everyone's, I don't know, this, no. this is what, what everyone says. Um, but, but honestly it's, it's talent. It's, it's finding the right people for us internally that can right. really help us scale. Um, uh, you know, it's very competitive out there. There's a lot of, a lot of cashed up companies that are, that are paying big salaries for, for the best guys in the market um, that, that can execute well. And so, you know, as a, as a recently, you know, just Series A company, there's only so much you can kind of do to, to compete with some of the guys with the big, big deep pockets that are paying ridiculously high salaries. And we've seen massive wage inflation, particularly in markets like Thailand, um, also in Indonesia. And so I think the competition for that top talent to help us scale is, is, is the hard part um, we've found. So, you know, we, you know, last year we, we had, uh, budget and headcount, you know, different departments to hire, and we just couldn't fill those roles. Um, so that's still the, sort of the one thing that I think is probably still the biggest biggest thing holding us back. And I know it's the same for many, many other startups in the market as well. So what we've tried to do is you just have to be a lot smarter. So we sort of focus more on, you know, hiring younger people um, who have great attitudes, great work ethic, and we'll teach them how to do it rather than hiring the guy who's got the 10 years of experience and is now on a ridiculously you know, high pay packet and, and is expecting a lot, you know, you can hire these young, smart, smart guys that are, you know, relatively fresh out of university, first or second jobbers, um, and give them the structure that they can accelerate um, and excel. So that's what we're trying to sort of work on now. Yeah. And look, 
I was having a conversation yesterday with a very prominent and well-respected venture capitalist in Malaysia, and she was saying the same thing, but she was very clear, and I want to be clear about this too, and she said it's hard to find talent. What she didn't mean, and I don't think you mean this either, is that there isn't any talent around or that there's no good talent in either Thailand or Indonesia or Malaysia. It's just that the bidding war for them... Right. right. And those people are, there are super smart young people, but they're not in yet. So you have to train them, which is what she's doing. And the talent that is here is just getting their salaries bidded up. And like you said, if you're competing with somebody who just raised a billion dollars, it's hard to compete on a salary level to get them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of the salaries we see being offered around are just insane. I mean, it's just <laughs> very hard. It's very hard to compete. I mean, you're either. Like at a very early stage, if you're like pre-Series A, you know, you can entice people with maybe lower salaries, but more equity. But once you right. get to a higher point, you know, you, you become more restricted and be able to give somebody, you know, 10% of the business, right? You can't do that anymore. So no. so this gets a lot tougher to compete. So we just have to be smarter. And that's part of the challenge. And it's, and it's what we have to kind of just make sure we nail. But, you know, the exception to that is Singapore, which, which you, you touched on, which we are going to be launching in the next quarter. You know, Singapore is interesting. A lot of people say, why Singapore? You know, it's not, it's not very big in terms of the, the, the blue collar or formal workforce. But what we see here is, I mean, there's, there's 250 to 300,000 workers in Singapore that work in this kind of space. And, you know, just to be really you know, frank, the, the wages here are significantly higher. So given our business model of actually you know, making a, a margin on the wages, we, we can actually get significantly higher revenues in a market right. like Singapore for significantly less work delivered. So we're sort of trying to get that, that anchor in this market as well. And can I just ask you one last thing before I let you go? What is it like on the other side of the market, right? So the worker acquisition side, I understand. What is it like on the company acquisition side, the people that are actually hiring the, or the companies, not the people, but the companies that are actually hiring the workers? What are those conversations like? And what's the kind of uh, sales cycle like for that? Yeah, so it depends. So, um, I mean, I'll just to touch on the worker side, because that, that has changed a bit in the last year. We're seeing actually now that the majority of our worker acquisition is coming from referrals. Yep. So we're starting to get really nice network effects where the, the, the workers are referring their friends and family, and that's bringing a lot of people in, which is awesome. great. Yeah. Uh, on, the, on the customer side, we have two kind of different customer sets, right? We have the, the the more sort of small businesses that kind of need people sporadically. And that's very much done through, you know, just, you know, online sign up and, and, and marketing. On the enterprise customer side, where they literally need hundreds of workers on, on an ongoing kind of basis or revolving basis, that's just done through a direct sales force. We have a direct sales force market. And depending on the customer, yeah, those sales cycles can be a little bit longer, but the value you get from those relationships is, is very, very high. I mean, we have like a 98% retention rate on our enterprise customers. So um, it takes you a long, maybe maybe a couple of months, two, three months to close those deals. Right. But once they're in and once you're deploying 200, 300 workers every day, you've got a kind of a very sticky offering for them and, and they stick and, and the lifetime value is very, very high. Got it. Okay. Uh, you can afford to have like a you know, expensive salesperson close those deals. Yeah, of course, because if you're employing 300 people, I mean, at scale, that's great for yeah. revenue, revenue right. growth, right? Yeah. Okay, Matt, look, I'm going to let you go. I really appreciate your time again today. And I cannot wait to follow up with you again. Co-founder and CEO of Workmate, Matthew Ward, awesome to have you here. Thanks so much, Michael. Appreciate it.